Today we're going to continue our study of, uh, of the epistle of James. And I'm going to ask you this morning to open your Bibles to James chapter 1. And uh, we will be looking today at verses 19 and 20. When we started this, I had stated early on when we started this study of James regarding uh, two premises that we find in the epistle. The first premise I had stated to you is that James is a book about faith, living, active, vibrant faith, faith that results from the new birth in Christ, faith that is demonstrated faith. It's a living faith. We're walking in that faith. We're living it out. And I want you to note that the faith that James describes and he speaks throughout this entire epistle is not an internal, it is not an intellectual, it is not a private matter as the world would have us believe. James says that active living faith in Christ has outward manifestations. People know that you are a believer in Christ. So one, it's a book about faith. The second element is, and I've said this, is that the epistle of James contains very practical truths. Very practical truths for us, one, to examine ourselves against, but secondly, for us to live, right? And I, I shared with you, we talk about a lot of times, this book is very convicting. Uh, we mentioned it's, it's kind of like the needle in the eye book. It's the one that draws your attention. And let me share something that when you come to study the epistle of James, you should come with a measure of sobriety because the word of God is going to speak to your heart. And it's going to challenge, maybe for some of you, some well-held convictions. It may challenge you to change. It may challenge you to repent. It may challenge you to be grieved over your station of faith in Christ. And by the way, if it does, praise God for that. We want to be a repentant people. Repentance isn't a thing. It's not a one-time wonder. Repentance is a lifestyle. We want to be men and women that are contrite and confessional before our God. The worst thing that we could ever be would be a people that ignore the truth of God and believe we're marching on to glory. That's the broad road. And that's the road that leads to everlasting destruction. To make this point, James, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, encourages these early Jewish believers that were scattered and persecuted for their faith. And he shows them that faith is demonstrated through a series of tests. I want you to think about that. What we have seen so far is that faith is demonstrated through a series of tests. The first series of tests we see in verses 2 through 13. The first test is faith is demonstrated in trials, when our faith is being tested. Although we may be crushed, although it may hurt us, we know that God is proving in the believer proven character. 
righteous character, building faith. In verses 13 through 16, we see that faith is demonstrated in how we handle temptations. And James makes that great statement, let no one say that when he is tempted, that he is tempted by God, for God tempts no one with evil. And when we looked at that, we went into the nature of God. And we looked and said, can God use sin? Does God use sin? Does God bring people? Can anyone claim that if they fell in a temptation, well, God, you brought me here through your sovereign will, you brought me here, so therefore, ultimately, you're responsible for my sin. And James says, absolutely not. The nature of God is such that God is impervious to sin. Evil cannot penetrate God, therefore, God cannot use evil, nor manipulate anybody with evil. So in verses 13 through 18, we saw that faith is demonstrated in how believers handle temptation and not only that but he also told us he said well god's not responsible for that evil but god is indeed responsible for something and he told us what that something is every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the father of lights in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow and I don't know that I addressed it the week before, but there are times that when the good gift that God gives us, many times we don't understand that good gift. Many times that good gift surfaces in times of trial. Many times we, we don't fully apprehend the good gift and we think, oh my goodness, God, why am I enduring this load? Why am I, why am I suffering this load? But yet God is working in us and God is working through us to purify, purify us from the trappings of the world and to bring forth a glorious, resplendent faith. And so we see that we go through this series of tests. And today, as we start verses 19 through 27, James is going to show us another one of, of, of another proof of one's faith. And this is important. A proof of faith, a proof of test, is how we respond to the Word of God. How we respond to the word of God. So today we're going to look at verses 19 and 20. And we're going to see three responses that believers have to the word of God. And the responses are to be quick to hear, to be slow to speak, and to be slow to anger. Let's look at the first one. Look at verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And James grammatically, right here in the very beginning, uses an imperative tense. An imperative tense in the Greek is a command. It's a command. Do this. Be aware of this. Look what he says. This you know. In other words, pay attention. My beloved brethren, let everyone, imperative, 
Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, contextually, verse 19 is a continuation of thought from verse 18. Verse 18, James, in commenting on God, that every good gift comes down from the Father of light, says this, In the exercise of his will he brought us forth by the word of truth. There it is, the word of God. There's another term, the word of truth. So that we might be, as it were, firstfruits among his creatures. And we see here that the firstfruits that he's referring to is that these early Jewish believers who had converted, who had suffered for the cause of Jesus Christ, were the first fruits of the church. They're the first fruits of Israel that's coming forward. And I shared with you that the term first fruits refers to the best fruit that is harvested, but is a promise of a greater and a bigger harvest that is to come. It is in the response to the word of God that James gives three principles. And these three principles say, how should we respond to the word of God? We are to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. So let's, let's break those down. Let's look at quick to hear. Right, This adjective, it speaks or it carries the meaning of immediacy. Immediacy. Fast and, a, fast and a quick response. James' point here is that every believer should seize the opportunity to listen to and to learn the word of God. Let us be quick to hear. We see in Revelation, John said, in the Spirit said, let him who have ears hear what the Spirit has to say. Right? Seize every opportunity to listen to faithful teaching and faithful preaching. Desire, crave, long for the Word of God. It is this hunger for the Word of God that is a mark of a believer. I want to say that again. It is a hunger for the Word of God that is a mark of a believer. We desire the Word of God. And we desire its truth. In Jeremiah 15, 16, listen to what the prophet says here. I love this. The prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 15, 16. Thy words were found and I ate them. And thy words became for me a joy and a delight of my heart. For I have been called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. Look at Jeremiah. Thy words, thy words became for me sweet. I devoured them. I ate them. Look at 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Handling accurately the word of truth. Peter puts it great in 1 Peter 2.2. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word that you may grow in respect to salvation. The prophet Jeremiah speaks of devouring the word of God. He says it was a delight to his heart. I often think, is the word of God a delight to your heart? 
Do you crave for it? Do you long for the Word of God? Do you desire the Word of God? Do you go with, through withdrawal when you're not in the Word of God? Peter, uh, Timothy, Paul puts it to Timothy. He says, be diligent, be diligent in your study of the Word of God. Handle the Word of God with accuracy. The Apostle Peter says, you're to long for it. You're to long for the Word of God like a baby desires and longs for milk. Such a, a, a visual for me, a very visual statement. I think of my granddaughter, Julia, when she sees the bottle. Oh, she asked it with that big belly there. But when she sees the bottle, she longs for that bottle. And if you have it here, she's going to take it from you and she's going to put it in her mouth. Peter says, long for the word of God. Desire the word of God. You know, it's an interesting fact. This longing for the Word of God, again, as I previously stated, is, is the sign of a believer. The believer longs for it. But the opposite of that is true as well, right? The lack of a desire for the Word of God could very well be said is an indicator of an unbeliever. No desire. If we are born again by the Spirit of God, if we are born again of Christ, if the Holy Ghost, the third person of the Trinity, dwells within us, well, what does the person of the Holy Spirit crave? He craves fellowship with the Father and the Son. He craves the very words. He clings on those words, which drives the believer into the Bible, into the Word of God. And I'm going to tell you something right now. I am so glad that we have this word. I am so glad that our salvation is not by feeling. Our salvation is not by emotion. Our salvation is not by anything else other than the word of God. Because I can jump into that word. I could read that word. I could hide that word in my heart so that I may not sin against God. That word is tangible. That word is visual. That word is binary. And that word sows inside my heart. God has not left us as orphans. I know many of us want to want to see Jesus, and a day is going to come when we will see Jesus. But in the interim, he's given us his word. God has given us precisely what he has chosen to reveal about himself. And we have this treasure. Brother or sister, let me tell you something. And I say this with all earnestness. Devour this word. Devour it. Treasure it. I was reading a story of Chinese Christians during the days of Mao's persecution, the Cultural Revolution in China. And you know, they went around with something called Mao's Red Book. And he gave it to young people, and the young people became overzealous. And they were killing anybody who thought they had anything to do with the prior regime. And there was a group of Christians who hid in the woods and would come together for church. 
And they were a small group of Christians. And by this time, they had burned Bibles. They had done everything imaginable. There was barely a whole copy of the Word of God. And so what these believers did is they separated pages from the Bible, ripped them out, folded them up into tiny things, and then buried them in certain places around their, their homes so that when the communist officials would come, they wouldn't have a Bible and they wouldn't be thrown into prison. One day, one day, smugglers came in and brought Bibles. And they cried. Some of them who were saved never even read a completed chapter. They clung to the few verses that they could have and they read them incessantly over the years and they prayed, God, oh, that you would send us your word, that you would send us the word of God. And when the smugglers came and they gave them Bibles, the people wept and wept and wept. They didn't even, they were never even familiar with the rest of the text. Look at what we have here. We have this book in abundance. Oh, that we would treasure this book. Amen. I want to share something. Do not believe what the world tells you. That faith is a private matter with no external manifestations. On the contrary, true faith results from the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing how? By the word of God. That's how faith comes. And that new life in Christ manifests itself in a desire for Christ and for his word. And I'm going to add, and for good teaching of the word of God. Listen to Psalm 1. I love this. This, is, this just popped into my head this week. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. It's no coincidence that in this opening book of praise, no coincidence at all, the Psalms, in its first two verses, it defines the believer. Why is that? Because only the believer has the right to worship God. Contrary to what other people are maybe saying in the church, it's only believers who have the right to worship God. And notice how the, the psalmist portrays the believer. The believer does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Believers stand apart from the world. Look what else he says. The believer he does not sit in the seat of scoffers. He's not with those who show scorn and disrespect and mock the word of God. And then he says, what is the believer? The believer's delight is in the law of God. And contrary to world's culture, the believer delights. He delights. He takes his pleasure in God's law, in God's word. Amos, the prophet Amos, prophet to Israel, 
In Amos chapter 8, prophesied of a time, and he warned Israel because of their sin against God. He says God is going to bring a famine in the land. In Amos 8.11, the prophet states this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for the hearing of the word of God. Notice it's a spiritual famine. Sin had caused them to go so far from God that God said, I am going to send the famine in the land and that famine is not going to be for food or water. The famine is going to be for hearing the word of God. As a matter of fact, Amos speaks of a famine that goes beyond that. The prophet says in verse 12 that people are going to go to and fro seeking a word from God. And people, Amos says in verse 12, he says, and people will stagger from sea to sea, from north even to the east, and they will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Why? Because of sin in the land. Now listen, contextually, this was prophesied to Israel. But I'm going to share something with you. Its principle is true. The more you turn away from God, the more you sin, the more the land moves itself, the more there will emerge a famine for truth, for the word of God. And we're seeing this principle today. We're seeing it today. Therefore, we must be extra careful to submit ourselves to true biblical teaching and to drink it in, to absorb it. So I shared with you Romans 10, 17 says, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How does faith come back? It doesn't, you don't have to take a theology course to get faith. You don't have to get a, a master's degree or a PhD to get faith. Faith comes by hearing, and that hearing is only by the word of God. And when James says, be quick to hear, we are to tune ourselves to the exhortation and preaching of the word of God. That's the first point that James is making. Let's look at the second point, slow to speak. Slow to speak works kind of alongside quick to hear. You cannot hear and listen if you talk all the time. The idea here is, is, is not to think of your thoughts when someone is articulating God's word. Also included in this term is the thought that when we speak, our words are to be well thought out, deliberate, accurate, concerning God's word. Not hastily spewing out words when they have not been considered or given their appropriate weightiness. Not being flippant with the word of God. Listen, words have meaning. Words have meaning. 
And therefore, we must be careful how we handle the Word of God. You see a lot of flippancy in the church. Put on the TV. You'll see people who are not rightfully dividing the Word of truth. Proverbs 17.20 says this, He who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. We got to measure our words. Greater condemnation comes upon teachers and preachers of the word of God. This is this responsibility to teach the word of God, to preach the word of God comes from a holy weightedness that I have to measure myself before God and measure the words. Are these the words of God? Are they truth? Listen to how some of the great preachers have handled this. It was said of Charles Spurgeon, you know Spurgeon, right? The prince of pe- preachers. That as he uh, ascended the 13 steps of the Metropolitan uh, Tabernacle in, in London, where he was the pastor for many years, that with each step as he went up, he would pray to himself with each step, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit until he reached the 13th step and stood in the pulpit. The great Scottish reformer, John Knox. Bold man, amazing man. Made this statement, I have never once feared the devil but I tremble every time I enter the pulpit. And one of my absolute favorites, Martin, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, states this, I can forgive a man for a bad sermon. I can forgive the preacher almost anything if he gives me a sense of God. If he gives me something for my soul, if he gives me the sense that though he is inadequate in himself, he is handling something which is very great and very glorious. If he gives me some dim glimpse of the majesty and the glory of God, the love of Christ my Savior, the magnificence of the gospel, if he does that, I am his debtor. And I am profoundly grateful to him. There is a great tragedy these days that there's a general biblical ignorance in the church. As I mentioned, all you have to do is flip on the TV. And my goodness, you hear a diversity of, of preaching that would grow hair on me. I've had the unfortunate experience of hearing professed Christian pastors and evangelists preach things that are just flat out wrong in the pulpit. And they elevate personal experience. They talk more of their their personal experience than the Word of God. And some who have preached those sermons Some of what they preach is in direct opposition to revealed biblical truth. 
and I'm going to share something with it with you. They did it with charisma. They did it with talent. They did it with emotion. They move the room. They move the room. But they did it all without biblical truth. These are dead men preaching dead words to dead people. And the sad thing is the people love it so. We must be quick to listen to biblical truth. And we must with all weightiness and all somberness be slow to speak, measuring our words to make sure they are indeed truth. John MacArthur states this, the man of God who God has anointed to preach and teach his word is compelled to do that with both a willingness and a joy. But he also is to do it with a sense of awe, always making sure by careful and patient study, preparation, and prayer that he says nothing in God's name that does not accurately reflect God's word. This past week I had... Uh, I had a, a, an interesting experience. I was cleaning out my garage where I keep my tools. And I found some tapes from 20 years ago of me preaching. 20 years ago. Actually, it was January 19, 2003. And uh, thanks to Ricky, I asked Ricky if he had a cassette player. I mean, it was a white tape, but the white tape is all, the white cassette tape is all yellow and, you know, just, I guess, from cooking in the garage over the years. And I asked Ricky, hey, you got a cassette player? He said, yeah, he brought the cassette player. And I popped the tape in, and to my surprise, the recordings are perfect. They're not defective at all. And the first thing I notice is, oh, my goodness, I sound so young. <laughs> That's the first thing I notice. And I listened to them, and Janet was there, and we listened for a for a little bit and kind of looking, kind of, you know, going back and forth with the delivery and, and trying to figure out, oh, wow, listen to this, from 2003 when I was at Calvary Chapel. And then um, I believe it was Ricky or Janet said, you know, well, you think we could convert these and then we could put them on to sermon audio? And I said, well, you know, maybe. But I said, I have to listen to them first. Did I not say this? I said, I have to listen to them first. And they said, why? I said, I want to make sure that 20 years ago I didn't say anything stupid and wrong concerning the Word of God. Because if I did, and that was a portion of my life that my whole theology was changing, my whole theology moving more to lordship and abandoning what, what had been easy believism and moving into the lordship of Christ. I wanted to make sure that if these words are going to go out, that they're going to go out and they're going to be accurate and true, that nobody's going to say, oh, Pastor Mark said this, just listen to that tape. Because if I, do, if I did say something stupid, it's going in the garbage. We need to be slow to speak. We need to consider the gravitas of the gospel. 
We need to know that when we share the gospel with somebody, when we're speaking the word, that we're not just taking things out of context because they may match the emotion or they may match the situation of the person, but rather to give them the full unvarnished truth of the gospel. Nothing could be more important than that. So we see that we must be quick to hear, slow to speak. And now the third principle that James speaks of, slow to anger. This final principle, slow to anger, that that Greek word for anger there is the Greek word orge. Orge. And orge speaks of a settled anger. This isn't an anger that somebody says something and you explode. That's not what we're talking about. It's an anger that settles into the heart. It's sitting under the level there. That's what he's talking about. It's a deep-rooted resentment against something or someone. And this is something that simmers over and over. An anger that goes unchecked and unrepentant. The anger that at times, and I'm sure we've all had this experience, that we justify by playing word games with ourselves. Well, it's not that I didn't forgive them. I forgave them. I'm just disturbed or I'm perturbed about this, that, or the other thing. We've already established, as James is writing about contextually here in verse 19, our response to the word of God. So we're to be quick to hear, slow and thoughtful to speak. But slow to anger? Where does anger toward the word of God, where where does this come from? In Hebrews 4.12, you're probably familiar with this, The writer of Hebrews writes this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The word of God is, is living and active. Therefore, the word of God pricks the heart. Therefore, the word of God pierces the heart. It convicts of sin. It pierces the conscience and it convicts the soul. uh, You guys probably know that my favorite prophet is Jeremiah and I tend to go to Jeremiah quite often, but here's another time I go. Jeremiah 21, 23, 29 says this. Is not my word a fire, declares the Lord, and like the hammer that shatters the stone? The prophet Jeremiah likens the word of God to a fire that burns, to a hammer that breaks stone. And what do we say of the heart when it is in sin? It is hard. The prophet Ezekiel said, 
speaking of Israel, one day I'm going to give them, I'm going to take away their heart of stone, and I'm going to give them a heart of flesh. And that hardness of the heart is the deadness of sin. And when that sharp two-edged sword pierces and judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, when that hammer falls and shatters the rock of sin in our hearts, there is a propensity for some to get angry at the word of God. I'm not going to read that verse. I'm not going to dwell on that. You read through the Word of God, and the Word of God speaks to you, and it convicts you of a particular sin, or it convicts you of your station in life right now, where maybe you're walking in rebellion, and deep down inside you go, well, I'm going to move past that. I'm going to, I'm going to go to the next chapter. Let me see what it has to say. There is a propensity for, for the soul to turn and get angry against God and get angry against His Word. James, in chapter 4, speaks of another anger that's going on among these dispersed Jews. In James 4, verses 1 and 2, he writes this. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Even here, James is saying, even among the brethren, there was some battling going on. There was some quarreling going on. And we can see that James states that it's their lust, it's their desire for other things that causes the sin in their midst. You know, whenever there's anger, the catalyst of anger is pride. It's pride. As a matter of fact, out of all the sins mentioned in Scripture, I think pride is the most insidious sin of all. Because it's pride that causes one to say, I shouldn't be spoken to that way. And it's pride than when you're wronged by another person that says, I'm going to go get my pound of flesh now. And it's pride that comes roaring back and says, I'm not going to let anybody talk to me that way. No, I draw the line. I'm a Christian, but I draw the line over here. Now he's going to hear from me. And it's pride that turns our, our hearts away from the Word of God when the Word of God speaks and speaks conviction into our heart. It is pride that will say, I'm not going to listen, I will not listen, and I will have my way. Brothers and sisters, if we need to be on guard against anything, it is pride. It is pride. And so James deals with this. Is there unsettled anger? Is there unforgiveness in the heart? Is it creating quarrels among the brethren? You too need to heed the word of God. 
You need to bow before the word of God. You need to submit yourself under the authority of the word of God. The believer comes to the word of God and bows in authority. I don't care how many degrees you have, how smart you may be, how many years you may be preaching. At the end of the day, when you approach this word, you approach this word in humility and submission and say, Father, thy word, I will heed. So sure, James' primary application is that we should not get angry in response to the word of God when it convicts and it challenges us. But its secondary application is against unrepentant anger. Unrepentant anger toward another brother or sister in the faith. That simmering, you know, seething anger that just lays just below the flesh. And as a matter of fact, James ends this thought in verse 20, where James says, for the anger of man, the orge of man, the simmering, settled anger, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And if that anger is there, you're deluding yourself. And if it's unrepentant, you're fooling yourself. And if you have to bring it to the Lord ten times a day, you bring it to the Lord ten times a day. And if you have to bring it to the Lord twenty times a month, you bring it to the Lord twenty times a month. But don't deceive yourself in self-righteousness, which is another fruit off the tree of pride. I'm right. I will not give in. And so here we see the third principle, as James says, be slow to anger. Oh, church, let the word of God convict us. Let the word of God pierce us. Let the word of God remind us of how wretched we are. Woe to us if we are the people that think we have everything right and nothing to repent of. Woe to us if in our self-righteousness we could look at others and go, thank goodness I'm not like that dirtbag degenerate over there. We will pray that same prayer as that Pharisee. Woe to us for that. So we see here in verse 19, this becomes a a gateway to this transition in James. And James articulates these practical truths to show us what? What genuine, living, active faith is. And today we looked at the proper response to the word of God and we saw those three principles. Be quick to hear, be slow to speak, and slow to anger. So what... What's our response to the word of God? We started our scripture reading today with Psalm 119. In Psalm 119, verse 11, you probably know this. Thy word I hide in my heart that I may not sin against thee. Hide the word of God in your heart. Psalm 119, verses 97 to 98 Listen to the words of the psalmist. I love this. Oh, how I love thy law. 
It is my meditation all the day. Thy commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. What should our response be to the word of God? Oh, how I love thy law. That we would be as the prophet Jeremiah. Thy words came and I ate them and they were the light to my heart. So the question becomes, do we desire the word of God? Let me share something and with this I'll close. Someone once came to the church a few years back and said something, I'll paraphrase it, but said something along the lines of this. Man, you pound the word of God. I said, well, what do you mean? I said, everything. You're always with the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. And I was sitting there trying to say, is he rebuking me or is, is this a compliment? What, what, what's the deal here? I said, well, that's intentional. And that's why we preach the word of God on Sunday and read the word of God on Sunday and we sing praises to God on Sunday. And that's why on Tuesday night, it's the word of God, 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 and we go through every line and everything expositorily. I said, we have prayer meeting, we begin with the word of God. And when I counsel anybody or somebody comes to me, I'll say the word of God says this, the word of God says that. And I said, there's a reason for that. And they said, what's that? I said, well, I'm an idiot. You don't want to hear my stupid opinions, but you want to hear what God has to say. My job is to tell you what God has to say. So you're going to continue to hear what God has to say. That's one facet of it. The second facet is, do we love the Word? Of God. And if we love the Word of God, we're going to do like Jeremiah does. We're going to devour the Word of God. We're going to spiritually eat the Word of God. We're going to hide the Word of God in our heart so when opportunities of temptation come against us, it is the Word of God that quickens our minds and quickens our heart so that we may not sin against Thee. And that comes not with reading the Word of God. That comes with studying the Word of God. That comes with consistency. That comes with application. I read it, now I apply it to my life. That comes with submission, saying that this indeed is the holy, true, inaccurate, inerrant Word of God of God. Therefore, I could rest on it. I could plant my feet upon it. And you know what? I can die by it. And if we do that, then our faith that we profess 
as I often say, our confession of a Christian that we profess, that we so easily go out and say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, well then that commitment to that confession will be evident in our lives. And people will know that we walk the walk and we talk the talk. And people will see the reality of Christ in us. And we will speak by the authority of the Holy Spirit because we speak the word of God. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.